I'm trying to find my timer so that I will not keep y'all here till two o'clock. Thank you for thank you, Father Ryan, especially for for uh, inviting me to do this. Uh, I'm, it's always an honor, and I appreciate y'all being here. And, uh, so, anyway, all right. Uh, okay, so well, I'm, I'm attempting to share uh, about. Uh, uh, Romans 9 through 11. And I know it's kind of crazy to try to, you know, uh, to try to cover eight chapter, let alone three chapters. And, not, you know, since th- three was too much, I decided to go ahead and throw in chapter eight. So, you know, just made sense. So, anyway, okay. Uh, yeah. All right. So, I call this the mystery or symphony of God's mercy. Uh, I think you'll see why is uh, the lesson, I don't know if this is a sermon or a lesson or some hybrid of both, but uh, but as it unfolds, I hope you'll see why I, I, I call it this. But anyway, Romans 9 for me, uh, you know, I, don't, I think in most Christians' lives, most evangelicals' lives, Romans 9 does not play a huge part in their, you know, Daily devotional life, or their their conception of their relationship with God, um, but uh, for me, it played a very significant role at a very early age. Over 40 years ago, uh, Pat and I had re- I'd gotten out of the Air Force. We'd returned to Tuscaloosa, starting back at the university, and we had some friends who were attending uh, uh, for uh, a Riverwood Presbyterian. And somehow or another, I don't remember all the details, but I do remember like seeing Romans 9 for the first time in my life. I'd never, I'd never, you know, Jacob have I loved and Esau I have hated. You know, oh, you know, the Bible says that God hates somebody. I didn't, I didn't know it said that. Uh, you know, and it said other things, and that's in Romans 9, of course. And of course, it really challenged me, but I, I mean, I was, at that time, as I hope has been true most of my life, I mean, I was very committed to the Lord, very committed to the Word, to the Scriptures. And, you know, it's like, I don't care who it ticks off or who it offends. If that's what the Bible says, if that's what the Word of God says, then so be it. That's what I'm going to embrace and what that's what I'm going to believe in. And so, you know, so it was momentous for me to... And, and that sort of led uh, for us becoming... Uh, under, coming under the label of Calvinist, and I won't get into you know what are all the distinctives of Calvinism. That would take a whole message. But uh, anyway, the basic distinction, in, in, in a nutshell, is the Calvinists stress the sovereignty of God. God has all the power. He has all the right. He can do anything He wants to do. He can violate your will. It does not matter because God's God. Okay. And uh, as opposed to the Armenian, which most evangelicals are what you would theologically label Armenian, they stress human freedom. That God in His love would never violate human freedom. That God doesn't force us to do anything. doesn't force us into the kingdom, etc. Uh, he just invites us. You know, hey, Jesus dies for us and uh, the gospel is preached. The invitation is made and we can accept it or reject it, but God's not going to force Himself on us because that's not what love would do. 
Of course, on the other hand, the Calvinists say, well, you can't even begin to respond to the gospel because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't respond to the gospel. You're, an enmity, you're at enmity with God. You're an enemy of God. Why in the world would you want to embrace the gospel unless God sovereignly moves on your heart, raises you from the dead, so to speak, spiritually. So, you know, I mean, the arguments can be made. There are very intelligent people that believe both sides of this position. But if there is a bedrock, in a sense, for Calvinism, it's Romans 9. Because that's a, that, again, is where, where we're told, especially the passages that have to do where it says that God has mercy on whom He will have mercy. And He hardens whomever He wants to harden. He hardens the hearts of people as well as having mercy on people and softening their hearts. So it's like that's all in God's hands. That's in His sovereign discretion. Uh, so, but I guess the hard, the more difficult part is is that it not only says He hardens their heart, He says He hardens their heart, and that they're fitted for destruction. And then He says, on the other hand, those upon whom He has mercy. They're, they're fitted by God. And it's really interesting. This is just a little footnote. It's interesting. You've got to pay attention because Paul doesn't say those fitted for destruction are fitted by God for destruction. It's almost like they're self-fitted. for they, they you know corrupt themselves more and more in sin. But then on the other hand, it talks about those that are fitted for glory and are, are, are given mercy and fitted for glory. It says fitted by God. For that, so it's interesting to pay attention to the details of what Paul says. But this is kind of the most offensive part, you know, that God would choose some. The Calvinists say you're either elect or you're reprobate. That you you can't be in between. You're one of the two. Okay, so you're either elect and from the foundation of the earth before you were ever born, before you ever did anything right or wrong, God chose you, not because of anything about you. It's just His sovereign choice. And that's to magnify His sovereignty and His power and His glory. Because otherwise you would be reprobate too. Because we're all reprobates in a sense by nature. We're all enemies of God. We're all destined for hell. And so whoever God doesn't elect, they're just naturally reprobate. And of course some Calvinists are more hardline Calvinists and they say God actively chooses to reprobate you, so to speak. But again, those are finer distinctives we won't get into. But the issue to me that this really raises, and of course, coming to this view again in my, in my 20s, uh, I eventually wound up going to a Calvinist seminary and, and joining a Calvinist denomination and pastoring a Calvinist church. They didn't know they were Calvinists, though. Most, most Presbyterians <laughs> don't know that they're Calvinists. If they did, they might not... Stay at the Presbyterian anyway, but but the, but the pastors know the pastors know because they're trained, they're taught, they're examined doctrinally, and if you don't answer the questions correctly in Presbytery, you can't stand in the pulpit. You've got to uphold the Westminster Confession of Faith, for instance, in the Presbyterian Church in America, or you can't preach. You can't be a pastor. Uh, if you don't pass the litmus, doctrinal litmus test that they give you when you begin to pastor uh, a local church. But all of it does, all, all of this raises the great question, what is God like? What is, I mean, at the very core of His heart, His being, His essence, what is God really like? And as the years evolved in my own life, and I'm reflecting more and more over these issues that most people don't really care that much about, but 
you know, people that are pastors tend to care a little more about the doctrinal fine points. And this is a pretty, this is a pretty fine, sharp point too, though. Is what is God's disposition toward humanity in general? You know, evangelicals generally say God loves you. Like the old four spiritual laws, He loves you and He has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, a true Calvinist couldn't say that. God may or may not love you. (laughs) He may have a horrific plan for your life, but if you're elect, of course, He has a wonderful plan for your life and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't resist His grace. It's irresistible. So, so these are the again these are the things that we're taught in seminary. We're examined in Presbytery, but generally, I'm not sure. When I was down in Utah First Pres for for nine years, I don't know that I ever taught a a single Calvinistic sermon that was really like you know you people you need to get straightened up in your theology. I may have them forgotten, but I don't think I did because you know. I, for whatever reason. So anyway, this is this is the thing, and then the quote from T. S. T. F. Torrance is one of my favorite theologians, uh, and and he's in a sense Torrance was a Calvinist, but he's an interesting case, a different kind of Calvinist, and he's interesting because he talked about, you know, is there a God hidden behind the back of Jesus? In other words, Jesus seems like he's friendly and he's our savior and he wants to do good for us but is there maybe an angry god kind of hidden behind the back of Jesus who may have decreed our reprobation uh, as opposed to our salvation so uh, it it can get a little scary it's like how can you even know that you're elect for sure you really can't until you die and go to heaven uh, not absolutely I mean you can have they generally it's thought you can have a sense of Holy Spirit assurance, but you can lose it very quickly, you know, and you can't really know until you die. That's the only way you'll really know if you're elect. Because God might have chosen you to deceive you, to make you think that you're elect. You know, I mean, it gets real crazy. Okay, next slide. Okay, so, uh, so, uh, I don't feel like I've sort of Put the put the issue forward very clearly or sharply, but anyway, we'll move on. Uh, but so, how do we move toward an answer? Because again, if you just go to Romans nine and you just read those passages, which is how it was presented to me, it's pretty darn compelling. I mean, it's right there. It's in black and white, and it's really hard to say. You know, that's where Paul says, Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? It's like, why does God still find fault? That's what, what this, what, you know, it's almost like he's created this, called an interlocutor, somebody that he's, you know, in the rhetoric of, of his, you know, presenting this. Uh, it's like he anticipates somebody saying something back to him, like, you know, why does God still find fault if He's the one that determines all that? And then Paul, just, Paul doesn't give him an answer. He just turns around and said, Who are you, O man? You know, doesn't the potter have the right over the clay to make of it some vessels for noble use and some for common use? Doesn't God have the right to do whatever He pleases? So again, this is if you, if you ever pay attention to Romans 9 and you think it's authoritative, <coughs> if you think it's the Word of God, then I think that's one reason why many evangelicals don't know about Romans 9. They read it and then they just like gloss over it. It's like, I don't understand that. Let me build something that I do understand. And they don't wrestle with it. But but in, in a way, it's, well, it's unfortunate. Nick, uh, yeah. Uh, first, we recognize this passage of Scripture from Romans as art. Uh, go ahead, Nick. 
For example, it's like a masterpiece, masterpiece painting or a brilliant musical score. I want you to realize that, you know, I, I think our tendency, if you, if, you, if you take Scripture seriously and you study Scripture, you don't just read it a little bit here and there devotionally, but you actually study to show yourself approved, uh, then, then when you come to a text like, one of Roman, like Romans, a letter, an epistle, of Paul to the church at Rome, you know, it's, it's a particular type of literature. It's, it is not a book of theology. And too many, too many times, especially a book of systematic theology, too many times we come to Scripture and we just think, well, here's a proposition and here's a proposition and here's a proposition, you know, and these all logically fit together or maybe we struggle with how they fit together. But anyway, we still kind of come to it. Well, this is, this is the truth. This is God's Word. This is proof. This is what, what's the truth and what I should believe, what everybody should believe. But when, when we do that, we can do disservice to the way that God in His providence has brought this epistle, this letter to us. It's like, don't read, you know, you wouldn't read a recipe book like it's a novel, would you? Or vice versa. You, 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 you should, or we should, appreciate the kind of literature that it is, the kind of writing that it is, and it might help us to make better sense of it, to understand it better. Next. Okay, so, like a masterpiece. Does anybody recognize what this is? Can anybody tell me? Okay, it's just a little, it's a little bitty piece out of another painting. Okay, and to me, that's like going to Romans 9 through 11 and taking a few verses out and saying, oh, that's what this is. Okay, so it's, it's probably the most famous painting by Monet. It's called The Water Lilies. Of course, he had a whole series of paintings called The Water Lilies. This is again with the Japanese bridge. It's probably the most famous. Okay, next. Does anybody recognize that? Are you sure? I thought somebody would. I mean, I thought, uh, huh? Mozart? No, no, no. I'm glad y'all did good. Nobody recognized it. Brian may have because he saw all the slides. No one's just kidding. Okay. So, it's just like a symphony. If you go to a symphony and you take a couple of measures out, you know, are you going to hear the symphony? Are you going to get the meaning or the message that's even in the music? It's impossible. You, 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 you could guess you know, all day long and you might not get it right. And you especially want yet the message in the music. And I think music, hey, if it's good music, even without lyrics, it has a message. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me how we're made so that we respond to certain notes and, and combination of notes and they evoke a certain kind of emotion from us. And so it's like this song that this comes with, this music that this comes from, it just, you just feel something, well, at least I do, and I think most people do. You feel something, you're deeply moved. Okay, next. Schindler's List. I don't know what you think about Schindler's List, but the the theme too. The it to me. Uh, I watched, I listened to it again yesterday, several times, and I wept. Tears are running out, and that that's real unusual for me. 
but, but I know I also contextualized it. It wasn't just a beautiful piece of music that had, you know, these notes that sort of bring you, bring you down into tense, tense and pensive state, like you're waiting on something and it's kind of dark in its theme, but then all of a sudden it lilts and it goes up and it ascends and you feel lifted up and kind of a measure of hope that you feel. But I know that one of the reasons I felt and I in a sense could read that into the song is because I, I, know, I know its context, how it goes with the movie. So, next. So, what is the point? Next. <laughs> That's a good question. You cannot see Paul's impressionistic masterpiece by taking just a few verses from Romans 9. And I do kind of think a lot of Paul's writings are like an impressionistic painting. They're not done like... I don't think... They're almost stream of consciousness, I believe. I don't think that he spent all his time you know, studying and analyzing and outlining and then he said, Luke, we're ready now. You can, you can write down what I'm about to say or whatever. It's, you get the impression that it's impressionistic, that it's kind of what's coming to his mind. But, and you also, you cannot hear Paul's symphony of mercy by hearing a couple of bars. And I think of this whole 9 through 11, it helps me to think of it as a as, as, as music or as art. It is art. It, and then I'm going to explain that in a minute. But, but it... Okay, let's go to the next. So, what is Paul's art here? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it is the art of rhetoric. Now, rhetoric really was... I don't know if you've ever studied the history. I haven't studied the history yet, but I'm, you know, I know a little bit about it. And, you know, even, even philosophers like Aristotle wrote about uh, specifically what rhetoric is. It is, uh, it is the art of persuasion, really, in terms of speech. And so as Paul is speaking through this letter, he is combining pathos, emotion. Pathos is actually a rhetorical word. It's a technical rhetorical word, pathos. Uh, emotion, mystery, hidden truth, and enigmas and riddles. There are tensions within the text. and there's, Sometimes there's shocking hyperbole. I personally think that when he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau I have hated, he, he means to get you Oh, wow, you know, he means to raise your attention level on that by saying that. Just like Jesus, when he says, if you're going to follow me, you must hate your mother and your father. It's like, huh? What? What did you say, Jesus? <laughs> well, you think Jesus literally means we have to hate and despise our parents? Of course he doesn't. But that's hyperbole. Jesus uses hyperbole a lot in his speech. Uh, and so it's all meant to move us, to persuade us next. But what is Paul seeking to persuade us of? That's the mystery. What's he trying to persuade us of? Okay, next. Okay, I'm not going to go over all this. This is crazy. Uh, but anyway, let me try to... Let me, let me see. I do want to address the old rules. So when we go to Scripture, uh, we... We're trying to figure out what it means, right? We're not just trying to uh, trying to understand just necessarily the plain English or the language of it, but we're trying to get to the meaning. Why did Paul say what he said? What does he mean by this? Uh, and in, in seminary, we're taught 
of what's called hermeneutics. A nice big word, hermeneutics. And it comes from the, the, the Hermes, the Greek god who was the messenger god. Hermeneutics is trying to understand, trying to get at the meaning of what did the author intend when they said or they wrote a thing? What did they really intend? And trying to avoid... Because when somebody says something, there's usually so many ways they can be misread or misunderstood. So we're trying to search for the meaning of the text. But the, the, the basic rule that you probably heard when it comes to interpreting Scripture and understanding Scripture is let Scripture interpret Scripture. I mean, I thought that's a pretty darn good rule. If you're going to try to get at the meaning of a particular passage, you let the, uh, the rest of Scripture speak to it, so to speak. Um, I love this, and I never can remember, especially the older I get, never can remember, but there's one, one of the, it's, it's, which psalm is the longest psalm? 119. It will, it, I think it comes from there. And it's just a simple statement, but it's so profound. It says that the sum of thy word is truth. The sum of thy word is true. Not just bits and pieces of it, but the whole of it put together, that is truth. So, uh, so the, and the second thing is the meaning is determined by the context. In other words, you can't just... It becomes a pretext when you take it out of its context and you just kind of let it say what you want it to say. But there, there's a problem with both of these. And the problem is, it assumes we understand the meaning of the other Scripture. <laughs> you know, let Scripture speak to Scripture. Well, if you're misunderstanding, and, uh, if you misunderstand the other Scripture that you're going to bring to interpret this, you're going to misinterpret both of them. Uh, or if you misunderstand the context, it doesn't help you with this specific text. So, which again is not to say that these are bad rules. It's just to say that we need to have hermeneutical humility. We need to, you know, when we interpret Scripture, we need to just always be open to the fact that, you know, what could be really wrong. But all these, all these other things I'm, I've got up here, uh, Brian is going to the next screen. Um, <clears throat> these are, again, some, I think, some helpful rules. I was going to say I was just going to try to summarize the gist of these things. And like one of the things I got up there is always read to the end of the story. Don't just read Romans 9 or don't just read a few verses in Romans 9 and think that you're going to understand what Paul is. What's it, what is he after? What is he trying to communicate? You've got, I mean, it's going to be like picking up a novel and reading somewhere in the middle of it and think you've got the plot line. It's just ridiculous. Uh, you've got to... We all know this, but I think we forget it. I really, in a sense, we let the chapter and the verse verses influence sometimes too much because Paul didn't put chapters, numbering, and verses. It was just one continuous flow. But of course, as you read it, if you read it thoughtfully, prayerfully, closely, you can tell when Paul is making a transition from you know, one idea to the next as he's building up an argument in particular. But uh, anyway, so, but it's it's kind of like the <coughs> kind of like the problem to me is kind of like the you've seen you've seen all this before. Is this a rabbit or is it a duck? Anybody know? Nobody knows. Uh, it's both. It's both. Okay. 
Is this an old lady or a young woman? Both. Okay. So, the problem. The images are two-dimensional. There's no depth, no depth perception. You can't get a sense of, you know, you can't turn it on its turn turn it around or on its side or anything. It's binary, it's black and it's just black and white. And only the author or the artist could tell you their intentions. Next. Paul's writings are symphonic. They're, they're not just binary black and white. They're mysterious. I mean, if you're befuddled when you read Paul and even Peter, you know, says Paul writes some things that are difficult to understand. You know, I was, I've always wondered what Paul thought of Peter's writings. But, uh, but they're symphonic, suggestive of a meaning they're suggestive of a symphony, especially in form, interweaving of themes, uh, or harmonious arrangement. To me, that, again, that's kind of an art of the way Paul develops this whole theme of Romans 9 through 11. Next. And they're multi-dimensional. Multi uh, what you see depends on where you stand. In other words, they're not two-dimensional. They're not just black and white, binary. They're, they're, like, they're more like a statue. And with a statue, of course, you could have a statue that looks just like that rabbit duck. But then you could move over here and you could say, oh, it is a duck, you know, or whatever. You could, you could get more of a sense. And so that's very important when it comes to interpreting Scripture uh, is to try to get an appreciation of the different dimensions and angles that Paul is coming from to better understand what, what is he really getting at next. Okay, this is a quick flyover of Romans 8 through 11. I, it's like... I'm going to be real quick with eight. I want to hope I want to be quick with all the rest of it because I know we don't have a lot of time. But what I did was with each chapter, I usually cited a verse that you're probably familiar with. You know, because you might not really know what the chapter says, but there's probably one verse of scripture that. And Romans eight, of course, has got to be all things work together for good to those that love the Lord, to those that are called according to His purpose, which is a wonderful verse, but. We're taking it out of its context. Still, it's still meaningfully. A lot of scriptures are meaningful. Like God is love. That's pretty meaningful whether you put it in or out of context. It's a profound, profound revelation only in the New Testament, not in the Old, that God is love. Uh, okay, but Romans 8, if you read the whole chapter, Paul is talking about, about creation. He says all of creation groans and longs and waits for the liberation of the children of God. So, so the, the, I, I just want to emphasize 9 through 11 to me is not just about who's saved and who's lost, who's going to heaven, who's going to hell. It's about for God so love the cosmos. That's the word that John uses in John 3.16. The cosmos. God, so God doesn't just love human beings. He loves us a whole bunch. But He sent His Son to die not, not just, I think you could say preeminently for human beings because we're the only one of His ones in His creation that are made in His image. So we definitely have, in a sense, the highest position within the created order. But he also loves my dog. You know? He loves that tree out there. 
That's all His creation. He loves it. He treasures it. And he wants to redeem every bit of it. That's God's intention. Next. Okay. So I just, I'm not going to read through all this, but I just kind of want you to see the highlights or the, or, or the emphatic points. You're going to see creation several times, which again means in Romans 8, this is Paul's, one of his great concerns is what's happening with creation? What is going to happen with creation? And so he says the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. To me, that's one of the most important uh, verses in Romans 8. And in a sense, it's a preview of 9-11. through It really is. That that's what God is up to. Then he talks about first fruits. Let's have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's a critical thing that I probably won't be able to talk about. Oh, Lord. I can't believe it. But anyway, okay. So, so he's talking about those that are called according to His purpose. Uh, and so, the, the, here's the reason I wanted to look at Romans 8. is cause, because you get into Romans 9-11 through 11 and, and, you, and you pick up on the theme of election. The whole topic of God electing some and not electing others. But it's like you have to start, interestingly enough, in Romans 8 to really appreciate that Paul didn't just abruptly start talking about election in Romans 9. He's already talking about election in Romans 8. And it's important. It's important. Uh, he, actually, he actually uses in verse 33... The word, the elect. And of course, he's talking about what shall, who shall separate us from the love of God, etc. And then, and then prior to that, he's talking about those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called. All that's election language. It's like God has a special people that he has chosen that are the elect, that he's got a special purpose and plan for them. Now, the question for me is. You know, does that still have a place in my own thinking and theology? And I have to tell you that the more I've studied 9 through 11, the more I've come to believe that, you know, it's not just that everybody is elect, but maybe God does have an elect group. But the question is, is are they the only ones going to be saved? That's the question. I know that's a mouthful and probably too. But anyway, let's go to, let's go to the next page. Okay, so this kind of explains my understanding of election at this point in my life. <laughs> and I do think it's faithful to Scripture, okay? Because Paul talks about all creation, all creation groans, waiting and longing for the glorious liberation that's coming, that's to come with the elect, okay? And then over here, he uses the terminology of the children of God and the elect. again. Okay. But, go ahead and do it one more time. But here's the thing. Paul, I'm deeply, I'm deeply convinced now that Paul is not saying, okay, we've got the elect over here, they're going to be saved. We've got the world and creation and all the rest of humanity over here, and they're just, they're lost. You know, they're doomed and they're damned because they're, again, by nature, enemies of God, etc., etc. But, Look what Paul says. He says the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You see, here's the point. 
Does God elect to separate those He's going to save from those He's not going to save? Or does God elect for special purpose to reach others? That's the critical point about election. Did God elect Jesus just so He could be the only one saved? Did God elect Israel in the Old Testament just so they'd just be the only people in the world that He would love and care for? Of course not. The purpose of election is to accomplish a purpose, a greater purpose that God has in His heart for all of creation. Next. <clears throat> oh, this is just an example of Revelation 14.4. And next, go ahead. I'm not going to be able to get into this anyway. Go ahead in the next slide. But there, there's, this whole, whole, there's this whole wonderful idea about the first fruits. And the first fruits, Paul really does basically say that the elect are the first fruits. And that means there's, a, there's another harvest remain, remaining. There's a larger harvest. But the first fruits are gathered in as an anticipation of what's going to happen to the whole, to the, to the larger harvest. And Paul, I believe, carries that theme very strongly. And I believe you can find it again like in Revel, the book of Revelation. Purpose of election. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. God says to Abraham. He doesn't just say you'll be the father of the Jews. He says you'll be the father of many. Next. And through your offspring, all nations will be blessed because you have obeyed me. All the nations. Why did God elect Abraham and his specific offspring? To bless all the nations. Where did they go wrong? They started thinking, oh, we're special. God elected us. You know, we're, we're, we are alone the people of God and let's not mix with those pagans and those Jews. God forbid. You know, totally got it off. Christians can be like that too, can't we? Anyway, go ahead next. Election is not to distinguish the saved from the damned. Uh, Romans uh, 8, the bridge to chapter 9. Okay, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I'm sorry. Who should separate us from the world? Okay. In height or death, anything in all Christians separate. Paul ends chapter 8 with all this stress on separation. What shall separate? Nothing shall separate us. But then go to the next. But Roman, then, then we have Romans 9. Again, remembering there are no chapter numbers. Paul didn't stop it at the end and then pause and then go into 9. The first movement of Paul's symphony of mercy next is... These are the first words of chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. The conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. I hate it that I'm going to have to rush through this part. But I'm telling you, you, you... Armenians, Calvinists, I don't care what brand or flavor you are, you can't possibly understand Romans 9-11 if you don't stop here and pause. Because if you believe what I once believed as a Calvinist, you could, you know, there's a way in which you could care less about the non-elect. Because, hey, God's God. He's good. He's made this decision. I don't have to worry about it. Paul is saying... 
I, am, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. And here's the point between the end of 8 and 9. He said, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then he turns right around and says, I could wish that I were separated from Christ for my people. That's how passionate I am. Why did Paul have that passion? Why did he have that heart? We well, he says early in chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit's been given us so that we can pray with words that are inexpressible and groanings. Paul had that passion because Jesus had that passion. Who was the only person ever to be accursed and cut off for us? Jesus Christ. He was accursed and cut off for us. Paul is expressing the heart of Christ as he says this. And so, if you start here instead of jumping to the middle of nine, there's no way you can draw crazy conclusions like I did as a Calvinist. You can't. You can't. You know there's something more, there's something else going on. Next. Do I miss the underlying truths? How? Okay, let's just go on to the next. Rhetorical symphony Paul is composing is one of, one of great sorrow, unceasing anguish. You just don't tend to think that that's where Paul's coming from, but you need to think that if you're going to understand what he's saying. And yet, it's not just unceasing sorrow and anguish. And yet. Okay. We're, we don't have time to watch this. So we'll, we'll just... You'll probably have to start it and then just, just hit it twice. If it works at all. Okay, is that next? Okay. Uh, yeah, I want, I really, I mean, it's like the most important thing. I wanted you to hear Schindler's list. Because, just think about it in context. It's like that is the heart of Paul. I mean, when you see the, the Jews being treated as, as they were in this film and in, in reality, you just can't help but have a heart full of anguish for Paul's people. And to me, that's part of his symphony here is he's, he's weaving this in to what is God up to, okay? So, <clears throat> so has God words... Chapter 9, the most important thing to me in chapter 9 is Paul is, right, is answering the question, has God's Word, has God's word failed? God...
but uh, <clears throat> but he seems to be answering the question maybe Israel hasn't believed because they haven't heard maybe they hadn't just really heard the message of the gospel and of course uh, in brief Paul is saying no they have heard and, and, and one of the most strange among all the other strange things that Paul says in 9 through 11 he he, he says this, uh, he says that second point, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It's like, wait a minute, Paul, if you go to Psalm 19, what is that talking about? It's talking about the heavens declaring the glory of God. You know, day to day, the fourth speech without words. So he's quoting from a passage about the heavens and he's relating it to the preaching and the hearing of the gospel. Again, strange, wonderful, perplexing, uh, but to me it says something about the fact that the Logos, the Word of God, is all around us. And that even Revelation talks about the eternal gospel and it relates it to creation. But it is the gospel of Jesus Christ next. So, Romans 11. There are no common favorites, I think. I don't know that anybody has a favorite verse from Romans 11 in a way it is the crescendo of everything Paul is saying from Romans 9 through 11 because in 11 the riddle is solved the mystery is unveiled the crescendo the symphony of mercy is given to us in, in, this, in this passage now finally we get back to the elect Paul once again uses that word elect again in Romans 11 that even though most of Israel has rejected that word which is Christ ultimately and they've hardened themselves and been hardened by God, there is still a remnant, Paul says, elect, chosen by grace. This is a critical key to understanding 9 through 11. And it offsets many of the apparent, it offsets the apparent harshness of Romans 9 about Jacob by blood and Esau hated and a hardened son and I had mercy on others, etc. It's like, if you get to 11, so many of those questions are answered and resolved. Why has this happened? What is God's purpose? Why has there been this hardening? What, uh, uh, there, his answer essentially is there, the, the, the disobedience of the majority of the Jews, because there are some, where he's talking about the elect remnant, there are some even in this present day, Paul says, he being one of them that are of the elect are the remnant. Their disobedience brought mercy to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles' obedience to faith is meant to provoke Israel to jealousy so that they too will receive mercy. And the key text and mystery, the hidden plan and working of God, Israel has been hardened in part. It was read uh, in our reading this morning. Israel has been hardened in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And this way, all Israel will be saved. All. All Israel. I mean... There are some people that want to go there and say, oh, well, that doesn't mean all. All doesn't mean all. You know, and I, I agree there are certain circumstances where all doesn't really mean all, but I believe here with all my heart that all means all. And it's meant to knock us over with a magnificent glory and extent and power of God's mercy and His grace. And, of course, some of you want to go, go further and say, well, that, that just means all, all the Jews that are alive when this happens. I don't believe it. I think it says all this will be solved. 
That was one of my principles that I didn't read on hermeneutics on the correct way. When the Bible offends your theology and goes against what you already believe, pay attention because it might be telling you something you need to hear and learn and believe. Uh, and when the Bible expresses itself in a passage that you want to constrict and say, oh, this all doesn't mean all. Listen, always err on the side of liberality. Always err on the side of liberality. God is far more liberal. I don't mean politically. But God is far, far more liberal and generous than you could ever imagine. His love, Paul says in Ephesians, it surpasses knowledge. It outstrips your imagination. Always err on the side of liberality and generosity. What does Paul say in Romans 5? He said, where sin abounds, grace abounds a little bit more. Right? No, he says, great does much more abound. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. That's how we should read this all when it comes to the salvation of Israel. And then he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, etc. Now that's an interesting another message, but anyway. Uh, this Israel is without a doubt referring to the hardened non-elect Israel. It's not referring to those that are elect, because he says, I'm going to come, I'm going to send my deliverer. He's going to turn them away from their sin. Uh, you know, it's so obvious. He just talked about the hardened non-elect Israel, and then the few remnant elected Israel, and he's saying, I have a, I have a wonderful mystery I want to share with you, Paul says, and that is God's going to turn this thing around all Israel will be saved. Okay, so next. Oh, okay. Revelation, great clarification, very important mystery, all of them. No overarching plan and purpose for God has bound everyone over to disobedience that he may have. Of course, and that was also read in our reading this morning. Probably should have just preached on that one verse. <laughs> He's bound. Think about it. Bound everyone under the disobedience that he might have mercy on all. That's God's heart, God's purpose, God's desire. That's that's our God. Next. Okay. And so here we're gonna this is the last slide, I promise. Uh, so uh, um, So we've just rushed through four chapters, really, but especially nine through eleven. And <clears throat> it to me, it, it, it's just—it's no coincidence whatsoever that when Paul reaches that last verse and he says he's, that he's bound all over to disobedience, he's, basically that is he's locked them up in the disobedience in order that he might. That when he gets to that point, he can't help himself. He explodes with praise. Hey, praise. He explodes. I mean, this is definitely a song. Yeah. He's changed from just whatever literary device or form he was writing into into a song. Oh, the depth, the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul's not saying, well, God is just so weird and strange that you can't possibly understand Him and His ways are not your ways. So when He elects some to salvation and condemns most of humanity, you just don't understand that you fool. 
whatever. No, he's talking about the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. If you put if you put that phrase in another in one word, what would it be? It would be Jesus. Paul says Jesus is the wisdom of God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom. How unsearchable judgment is past you know, tracing, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, is given to God, to God you for from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So so let your minds and hearts be expanded when it comes to this gets back to this gets back to the to the issue of starting an ache with creation. Okay? This is this is all encompassing. God's God I'm sorry, John Calvin, God is not after trying to save a few people. He's got a huge plan. 